You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. That's the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel in your New Testament, and chapter 22. We're going to begin this morning by reading Matthew chapter 22, the first 14 verses. Again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we study it this morning, Lord, would you give us understanding? And Lord, we pray that uh, you would meet us in this place, answer some of our questions, help us work through some of our doubts, Lord, that we might move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. Lord, help us. We ask that you would equip us so that we might be uh, equipped with not only a sense of uh, answers to people's questions and our own, but also, Lord, with a sense of urgency, the same urgency that you had, Jesus, that drove you to the cross, that drove you to come to this earth, live for us, die for us, and rise again. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning, as we study your word, Lord, give us insight into it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're currently in a series called, I Could Never Believe in a God Who... And over the eight weeks of this series, what we're doing is we're taking eight weeks to honestly look, take an honest and clear look at some of the biggest objections that people have to Christianity and the Bible. I was kind of joking with somebody uh, earlier, you know, that in this series, we were basically taking all the things that people don't like to talk about, and we're just talking about them for eight weeks. And so eight weeks of, of big questions and objections that people have about Christianity and the Bible. A few months ago, we put out a poll online, and and we asked you to help us answer that question. And how, how would you answer that question? Or how have you heard other people answer that question? The question is this. I could never believe in a God who... And we asked you to complete that sentence for us. And what we did is we took the responses that we got from that poll, and we looked at other research as well, and we identified eight topics which people say make it hard for them to embrace Christianity and really, truly put their faith in the gospel and follow Jesus. And our goal through this series is really two things, right? On, on one hand, we want to hopefully remove some of those barriers and help you move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief. If there are areas where you're like, you know, I, I'm 
kind of believe, but there's this one thing that's a barrier for me. We want to help hopefully remove some of those barriers and give some real answers. The other goal with this series is to equip you because we know that you talk to friends and family and coworkers and they're asking a lot of these questions too. So we want to equip you with some tools, with some answers so that you'll be able to intelligently discuss these things with them and hopefully help them move from doubt and unbelief to faith and belief in Jesus. So when it comes to Christianity and the Bible, one of the the biggest hurdles that people say they have, they say this, I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. My wife and I, before we moved to Colorado, we moved here seven years ago, and before we moved to Colorado, we lived in Hungary for uh, over 10 years, and one of the things we did in Hungary is that um, we worked in a church, but every summer we would organize a camp for high school and college students, so high school and college students, and, and through this camp, you know, we had hundreds of people come to the camps, and many of those people who came to the camp got exposed to Christianity and ended up embracing the gospel and following Jesus. It's a very exciting thing that we got to be involved with. Well, one of the people who came to this camp and became a Christian was a young girl named Tunde. Tunde was her name, and at camp, she had came, she had met other Christians, she had heard the good news about Jesus, how he came to live and die and and raised from the dead so that she could be forgiven and redeemed and have eternal life and a relationship with God. And she was so moved and touched by that message that she, she embraced the gospel. And so she started coming to our church and Rosemary would meet with her and they would study the Bible together. And this young woman, uh, she had grown up in a family where both her parents were atheists. It's very, you know, it's a common thing, especially in that part of the world, to have parents who are uh, atheists and raised that way. Particularly her dad was a committed atheist. And as a result, growing up, she hadn't been exposed to the Bible before. And so you can imagine she was excited. She was like a sponge, right? She's enthusiastic, learning the ways of Jesus and learning about the Bible and all these things. But at one point, not long after she started coming to our church, um, her dad got sick. And then he died. And Tunde asked us a question. She said, so if my dad was an atheist, does that mean that he went to hell? And of course, we told her, you know, I hope not. That's definitely outside of, of my range of knowledge, and it's definitely not up to me to make that determination and say for sure what the eternal destiny of some other person's soul is. You know, uh, that's only for God to judge. But we do know that the Bible says that there's only one name given under heaven by which people can be saved, and that Jesus is a savior, so therefore to reject Jesus is to reject the salvation that God has provided. Now you can imagine, maybe you can even relate to this, some of you. This girl, Tunde, she, she was very disturbed by the thought that her father, whom she loved, her father who was, who was a kind man and a decent person and a caring person, that he might have gone to hell. And so she finally made the decision, look, if being a Christian means that I have to believe that my father went to hell, then I'd rather not be a Christian. And so she turned her back on Christianity and she walked away. Now that young lady in her story is not necessarily unique, right? That, that story has played out in many people's lives over the years. Let me give you a couple quotes. Um, Bertrand Russell, he was a philosopher. Here's what he said. He said, I do not feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Charles Darwin, ever heard of him? 
Here's what he said. The doctrine of hell, he said, was one of the reasons why he abandoned the Christian faith. Now, I just want to point this out. That's interesting, right? Charles Darwin didn't abandon Christianity because of the theory of evolution. It wasn't because of science that Darwin turned his back on Christianity. Rather, the reason he left Christianity was profoundly personal. Look at what he said. He said, I can hardly see why anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true, as it teaches that men who do not believe, and then he adds, and this would include my father, my brother, and almost all my friends will be everlastingly punished. For people like Charles Darwin, like our friend Tunde, the doctrine of hell isn't just something that they struggle with as an abstract philosophical principle. No, for them, it's something that they struggle with on a deeply personal level because there are people they love, people they care about, and they hate the thought that those people might not be in a good place and that they might not be in a good place for eternity. And so they would rather believe that Christianity is not true. They'd rather choose to not believe Christianity than believe that that's the case. The problem with that, though, is this. Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true, right? There are a lot of things that I don't like, but that doesn't mean that those things aren't true. And guys, if we're dealing with reality, we gotta remember this. Things don't become true or untrue based on how I feel about them or, or whether or not I choose to believe in them, right? Like I can say I don't believe in something, but that doesn't change the reality of that thing. And so rather than asking, do I like this or do I dislike that? That's really the wrong question to ask, isn't it? The more important question for us to ask is this. Regardless of how I feel about this thing, is it true? Is it true? Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about the topic of hell. He said this. There is no doctrine I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and specifically from our Lord's own words, and it has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. What he's saying is, man, I wish, I wish this wasn't true. I wish I could just scrap this doctrine, but I can't. That's not how this works. For, for many people, the reason they are repulsed by the idea of hell is because it doesn't seem to fit with their idea how they've imagined that God is or how they think that God should be. For example, people question whether or not hell is really fair. One of the biggest things people struggle with when it comes to hell is the finality of it, right? The, the eternalness of it. People often ask, what about people who uh, have never had a chance to hear about Jesus? Do they go to hell? And if so, how is that even fair? Another question people ask, they say this, what about people who follow other religions very rigidly? Like what if they, you know, they're totally all in, they're sold out for their own religion, but they were born in a place where everybody follows a certain religion, born into a different kind of family where everybody follows a particular religion and, and they follow it really closely. What about decent moral people who just don't believe in Jesus? Will they go to hell? And if so, how is that fair? How is that loving? Well, let's, first of all, let's talk about some common misnomers about hell, right? So it's common, common misnomers in the ways that people think about hell that we can quickly correct. For example, many people assume that hell must be like an Old Testament thing, right? Like hell must be an Old Testament thing. You know, the Old Testament being that part of the Bible that was written before Jesus. Sometimes people tend to think of it like those are God's younger years, right? When he used to, you know, have a short fuse, used to fly off the handle. He was always talking about judgment and stuff. And so the assumption is, Hell and, and judgment, 
Those are Old Testament ideas. And then Jesus came along and he actually taught against those things. Well, again, that's not true. You realize that, right? Here's the facts about the Old Testament and hell. The Old Testament actually has very little to say about the topic of hell. It doesn't have nothing to say. It says a few things, but it has very little to say about the topic of hell. Most of what we know and believe about hell doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes from the New Testament. Here's another common misnomer. That the idea of hell, I've heard this one a lot of times, that the idea of hell uh, was invented by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages in order to scare people into submission as a way of kind of manipulating them and holding something over their head to uh, scare them into submission. I've heard people say, you know, when people think about hell and they think about flames and fire and eternal punishment and all that, they get those ideas not from the Bible, but from the medieval book Dante's Inferno. That's a common uh, belief and misnomer. But again, that's not true. Let me just give you some statistics. Uh, Most of our understanding about hell actually comes not only from the New Testament, but from the words of Jesus himself. In fact, 13% of all of Jesus' teaching and half of his parables were about hell, judgment, and the wrath of God. Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. In fact, Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. That's surprising, right? Maybe, it is, maybe it's not surprising. I, I think it's surprising. What, may, what that means is this. Hell is not a peripheral issue. It was a key theme in Jesus' teaching. So here's the thing. If you say, which many people do, even people who don't follow Jesus, if you say that Jesus was a good teacher, then you have to grapple with this. You have to grapple with the fact that he talked about hell a lot. He talked about hell more than anybody else in the entire Bible. See, what Christians believe about hell doesn't come from the Apostle Paul. It doesn't come from the Old Testament. It comes straight from Jesus himself. So to reject the idea of hell is to reject the teaching of Jesus. And the question could be asked, why did Jesus talk so much about hell? Why did Jesus talk about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? Well, I suggest to you that he did it out of love. He did it out of love. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God our Savior desires for all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. See, Jesus didn't just talk about hell. He actually did something about it. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a very interesting story in which Jesus tells the story of a person who went to hell. It's a story that I sometimes tell when I do a funeral because people, people like our friend, my friend Tundi, like, like Charles Darwin, they say, you know, for me, this is deeply personal. There are people I know, there are people I care about who I don't think that they went to heaven. And one of the things I always try to remind people of is, again, that doesn't mean that we, we say hell isn't true. We have to deal with that on its own standing. But here's the thing that Jesus tells us in this parable. He tells the story of a man who went to hell. And you know what that man's greatest desire was? His greatest desire was to go back and warn his family. And I always tell people, hey, it doesn't mean it's not true. But it does mean this. If your person you loved were here right now, here's what they would want you to know. They'd want you to know that hell is real and that you don't have to go there that there is a way to avoid it. See, with Jesus, when he talks about hell, it's precisely because he cares so much. It's precisely because he loves so much and he doesn't want you to go there. See, if I saw you heading towards something which I knew was going to hurt you and wreck you and be bad for you, and I didn't say anything, I just stood aside and let you continue in that way, I didn't try to stop you at all, you would legitimately have to wonder whether or not I loved you at all, whether or not I really cared about you. See, because the opposite of loving care 
is what? It's indifference. The opposite of loving care is indifference. Indifference is when I don't care at all, right? Like, like hockey. I'm completely indifferent to hockey. Uh, I care about as much about hockey as I care about like the ping pong world championship. Like I don't care who the teams are. I don't care who wins. I just don't care, right? And that's kind of like you can be, feel that way about people. Be like, you know what? I don't care. I don't care what happens to you at all. But here's the thing. Jesus was not at all indifferent, That's why he talked about hell, because he cares, because he loves. And what he says about hell, he says this. He says, look, guys, full disclosure, all cards on the table, right? Here is what is on the line. You need to understand the severity of this issue. And Jesus went one step further than just talking about it. Not only did he talk about it, but he said, here's what's on the line. And then he said, he reached out his hand and he said, let me save you. Let me save you. So in Matthew 22, we're going to look at a story about a wedding feast. And there are three key elements to this story uh, that speak directly to our lives and which touch on the issue of hell. And here are the three key elements to the story. First of all, we're going to see an invitation. Then we're going to see a gift. And then we're going to see a refusal. So an invitation, a gift, and a refusal. Let's begin by looking at the invitation in this story. Jesus begins this parable by saying that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So again, the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, which means that the king is God in this story. And God is throwing a wedding feast for his son. Now, throughout the Bible, heaven is described using the metaphor of a wedding feast, right? Just as a wedding is what? It's the uniting of two parties in the bond of love and the celebration of that union. That is what heaven will be. It will be the uniting of people together with God in an unbreakable bond, a union of love that will last forever. And it will be a celebration. It will be a part. See, weddings tend to be some of the most extravagant, elaborate parties that people ever uh, throw in their lives, aren't they? Think about royal weddings, right? They pull out all the stops. That's what we see here. This is a royal wedding. And so I love the fact that heaven is compared to a wedding. It says that the king sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. All the preparations were made. The meat was cooked. The food was prepared. The, table were, the tables were set. The hall was reserved and decorated. Those of you who have planned a wedding, you know what this is like, right? You know the months and months of preparation, the work, all the time, all the money, all the attention to detail that goes into preparing for a wedding. And then look at how the people respond. We basically see four different responses, but first we see these first two, four different responses. First, we see that some people heard the invitation and they blew it off. They ignored it. They were indifferent to it. It says that in verse five, some of them were busy. Some of them were busy with work and life, right? They got their heads down. They're just plowing forward, dealing with what's right in front of them. And so they just ignore the invitation to come to the wedding feast. The next group though, They're not just indifferent. They're openly antagonistic. They attack the messengers. And some, for some reason, they're angry. Now, I don't get it. Like, why would you be angry? Somebody's like, hey, come to my free party. I'm going to feed you dinner. And uh, like, there'll be music and it'll be great. And you're like, I hate that idea. And I'm going to, you know, attack these messengers. I don't get it. But that's what they did. What Jesus is saying in this parable is that God is inviting people to come to the wedding feast, which is heaven. He's inviting them to come and be united with him forever in joy and celebration. That's the message of the gospel, that God has done everything. Notice all the preparations are made. There's nothing that needs to be done by those who come, right? Your part is just to respond to the invitation and enjoy the experience of what he has done for you. And yet there are people who not only just ignore it, there are some people who are even antagonistic against it. How could that be? I don't know, but that's the truth. 
And look at verse eight. Then the king says to his servants, well, if these people aren't willing to come, then just go out into the streets and invite anybody who you find, bring them into the hall, and just whoever comes, that's who will be there. So the servants go out, and they go out into the roads, the streets, and they start gathering the people they find. And I love this phrase. It's so compelling, isn't it? It says, they brought in the people, both the bad and the good. That's a key phrase, the bad and the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the invitation goes out to everyone, both the bad and the good. Kings and royalty, by the way, they don't generally mix with the general population. They usually keep their company with a certain class of people, don't they? With a particular social and financial class. The king is doing something completely out of the ordinary. He sends his servants out to gather anyone who's willing to come. Imagine the kind of people you would find if you just went out in the street and just started gathering everybody you saw on the street. Homeless, the beggars, right? Common people. They're going into shops, dragging people out of their businesses. They're going into the marketplace and just bringing whoever's there. They're going into the fields and bringing people who are in the middle of work and just bringing them into this wedding feast. And they're brought into the wedding hall. Now, none of these people, of course, had time to go home and fix themselves up and do their makeup and put on nice clothes. They just got pulled out of a field and, and some of these people were homeless, right? Like, they, they, it's all the clothes they have. Some of the people who were brought in were bad people, right? Like, they were rough characters. They had questionable pasts. Definitely not the kind of people you would expect a king to associate with. But this is a picture of the gospel. God has done everything and he invites you to come. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, you're invited to come and be united to God in celebration and joy that lasts forever. The problem is, these people aren't really dressed for a wedding, right? Like, have you ever showed up somewhere and you're just not dressed for the occasion? Well, that's these people. They, they came right off the street and, and they're not dressed for the occasion, which brings us to our second point, which is the gift. Now, it was customary in those times, and you can't really understand this story unless you understand this custom. Because it seems weird that this one guy, his clothes just aren't right, and then uh, he gets kicked out. Why? Well, here's why. It was customary in those times that if you got invited to a fancy party, that the host of the party would provide you with special clothes to wear at the party. Now, this was especially the case when it came to royalty. You would come in wearing your regular clothes, whatever you wear, you know, sweatpants and, and yoga pants and uh, jeans and t-shirts, which might be fine for out in the street or out at work, but they're unfit for the presence of a king. And so, of course, no one had, had as much money as the king in those days. So the only way for you to have clothes that were presentable before the king was for the king himself to provide those clothes because he's the only one who has the means to have those those kinds of clothes. And so we, did you know that we actually see this custom in two places in the Bible? And then it's referred to in several places in the Bible. So in the book of Genesis, chapter 45, you read about Joseph and his, his brothers. You remember the story? Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Joseph goes to Egypt through miraculous turn of events. He becomes a high-ranking official. Then the brothers come. They're poor. They're hungry. And what happens? It says that Joseph meets them. They don't recognize him because it's been so many years. They haven't seen him since he was a kid. Well, he brings them into the king's house. And then what happens? It says that the king provided them with clothes to wear. In other words, the king took them where they were, changed out their clothes to make them presentable before himself. We read about it in the book of Esther, same thing. There's this guy Mordecai, and the king wants to bring him into his court. But in order for Mordecai to come into the king's court, he has to look presentable. So what does the king do? The king provides him with a change of clothes. 
In fact, uh, you know, we see the same custom here in verses 11 to 12. That's exactly why it says, when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there was a man who didn't have a wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? The wedding garment was a special garment that everyone would have been gifted, given as a gift by the king when they walked in. And so naturally, the king thinks it's weird. I gave everybody uh, this gift. Why, why didn't this, did he not get one? Right? Why isn't he wearing it? This is, again, a well-documented custom in many ancient cultures, and it's actually something that's referred to in the prophets of Ezekiel and Isaiah refer to this custom, and they say that this is a picture of what God does for his people. This is a picture of God's grace. God meets you wherever you're at, right? And he takes you, and he begins to adorn you and bless you and clean you up. In other words, the message of the gospel is not that God accepts you if you are beautiful, if you are good. It's that God meets you where you're at and he works in your life in order to make you beautiful, in order to make you good. See, the message, again, he, he works in your life to make you beautiful. It isn't that you have to become good enough for God to accept you. It's that God meets you where you're at and he gives you everything you need in order to make you acceptable before him. That's the message of grace that we call that in theological terms, imputed righteousness. You lack the righteousness you need to stand before God. So he imputes it to you. He accounts it to you. Now you might ask the question, so if God does all the work and he provides everything we need, and he makes us acceptable before him, then how is it that anybody goes to hell? I mean, isn't he doing it all? How could anybody go to hell? Well, that brings us to the last part of our story, which is the refusal. The king comes into the party, and he notices this guy not wearing the wedding garment that he provided everyone with as a gift. And so he goes up to this guy, and he asks him, friend, I love that, he addresses him as a friend, he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Was there some sort of mistake? Did you not get offered one? And it says the man was speechless. And the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him out into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this guy, who's not wearing the right clothes, goes to hell. That escalated very quickly, didn't it? Right? Like the reason for the king's reaction is that this person refused his gift. There wasn't a mix-up. It was a refusal on that man's part to receive and apply the gift that was given. See, this person apparently thought that his clothes were good enough. Maybe he was, you know, maybe they were pretty nice clothes. And he thought, you know, I don't need the king's garments. My garments are good as they are. So he refused the king's gift. He thought that he was plenty presentable just the way he was. He didn't need the clothes the king had provided. The only problem was he wasn't presentable the way he was. And he couldn't stay at the party wearing those clothes he was in. Instead, he refused to put on the wedding garment which was provided for him. And therefore, he had to leave. And what awaited him outside the party was terrible. And you can't help but look at this guy and be like, what, what's the deal? Like, what, what are you thinking? Right? You're given a choice between a wedding feast fit for a king and outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you're going to choose darkness over the party just because you're so stubborn that you're not willing to just change your clothes and put on the clothes that were given to you. Does that make any sense at all? Why would you do that? And yet Jesus wants us to see, as ridiculous as that sounds, that is exactly what people are doing. That is exactly what people do when it comes to God and his offer of grace. You see, the metaphor of clothing is a big one in the Bible. 
The Bible says that God is clothed with glory and majesty. He's clothed with holiness. In Isaiah 64, we're told that compared to God's holiness, our good deeds are like filthy rags in comparison. Now, remember that not our bad deeds are like filthy rags. Our best deeds are like filthy rags in comparison with the glory of God. But the promise of the gospel is that God will come, and if we will come to him, he will clothe us with his righteousness as a gift in order to make us acceptable before him. Isaiah 61 verse 10, it says this, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So the person who refuses to accept the gift of the king's clothing who insist that their own clothes are good enough, this is a metaphor for a person who says, you know what, I think I'm good enough. I don't think I need to repent. I don't think I need a savior. I think that when I stand before God, he's gonna be like, hey, come on in because you're a decent person. You tried hard and you did well. Now remember, both the good people and bad people were welcomed into the wedding feast. The only person who's sent away is not an immoral person, but a person who refuses the clothes the king has provided, thinking that their own clothes are good enough. See, what we see in this parable really are four different responses to the gospel. Four different responses to the gospel. The first three are different forms of rejecting the gospel. First, by ignoring, then by being antagonistic, and thirdly, by refusing this gift that God gives you, this gift of God's grace. All three of these responses result in the same thing, These people are left outside of the party, in the dark, experiencing great regret and anguish. But the fourth response is the response of those who receive and accept the invitation. They accept the gift of the king's clothes and they gladly put them on. Those are the ones who get to take part in the wedding feast, in the celebration. They get to experience the joy. And here's the point I want you to see. I want you to ask you, you know, ask you this question. In response to the question, how could a loving God send people to hell? Let me respond with a question of my own. What if hell, in light of this parable, what if hell is not so much God's decision to live without you, but the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? Let me say that again. What if hell isn't so much God's decision to live without you as the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? Because here's, here's the thing. One day, you're gonna stand before God. So am I. And the question is, what will you be wearing on that day? It's the most important question. What will you be wearing when you meet God? The Bible says that some people will stand before God naked. In other words, they will be totally unprepared for that moment. Others will stand before God clothed in the rags of their own righteousness, like this guy in our story. And then there will be those who stand before God clothed in the white robes of Jesus's righteousness. Again, following this theme of being clothed by God, let me read you what it says at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, what will happen at the end of all things. Here's what it says. John, he's speaking of this vision he has of heaven, and he says this. When I heard what, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty pearls, or mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her, check this out, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. 
Guys, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God has made all the provisions. He's even offered you the clothes that you need. And the question is, how will you respond? What will you wear? See, in light of this parable, I want to ask the question again. What if hell is not so much God's decision to live without you as the fulfillment of your decision to live without God? In Romans chapter 1, Paul the Apostle tells us something about God's judgment, which is very similar to what Jesus says here in a narrative form in Matthew 22. In, chapter, in Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 32, Paul describes that God's judgment is essentially this. God's judgment is essentially God giving people what they have insisted upon. It's giving people what they have insisted upon. Three times in that section, Paul repeats this phrase. He does it three times. The phrase is this, so God gave them up. So God gave them up. In other words, sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is for God to give you what you yourself have insisted upon. See, if what you want and what you've insisted on is something which will ultimately destroy you, then getting what you insist on is the worst thing that could happen to you. And we're told in, in Romans chapter one that God's judgment is based on knowledge. God's judgment is based on knowledge. So when people ask the question, what about people who have never had the chance to hear about Jesus? Romans chapter one speaks to that question. It tells us God's judgment is based on knowledge. God judges us based on what we know and what we have done with what we know. And still Romans one tells us, it says, look, in spite of that, all people everywhere in the world are without excuse because all people have a sense of right and wrong. There are things that they can discern. Some things are right, some things are wrong, and all of us know that we have done things which we ourselves know are wrong. And that's why the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it tells us this, the wages of sin is death. You could put it this way. Hell is not punishment for particularly bad people. Rather, for all of us, it's our default destination. Our default destination is death and eternal separation from God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, that hell is described this way, as eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. See, here's the thing. The hellishness of hell is the absence of God. The hellishness of hell is that you will be eternally separated from God. I think sometimes we get so caught up in our material concepts, right? Because we only think about things that we know. We think about these material concepts, what heaven and hell will be like, and we miss the plain point of both. We think about, you know, literal flames, or we, we ask the question, well, if I go to heaven, well, will my cat be there? Or like, what size will my mansion be? And we're totally missing the point. Guys, the heavenliness of heaven is that God will be there, and the hellishness of hell is the absence of God. In the same way, again, Jesus, you could put it this way. If Jesus is the bread of life, then loss of Jesus means starving. If Jesus is the light of the world, then loss of Jesus means darkness. If Jesus is the good shepherd, then loss of Jesus means wandering and lost, right? If Jesus is the resurrection and the life, loss of Jesus is eternal death. If Jesus is the Lamb of God who is sacrificed for our sins, then loss of Jesus means paying that price for ourselves. And what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 1 is that the ultimate form of God's judgment is when God gives you what you yourself have insisted upon. And think about what that means. It means this, if a person spends their whole life pushing God away and saying to God, I do not want you to rule over me. I don't need you in my life. I don't want you in my life. I want to be separate. I want to do my own thing. I want to be autonomous. 
If like the person in our story, uh, if the person continually refuses the invitation to the wedding and they refuse to put on the clothes that God has offered them and provided for them, then the ultimate judgment is for God to say, okay. Uh, On the other hand, if you cast yourself upon God's mercy, if you confess, hey, my righteousness is not enough, I've fallen short, I need God to save me, that's the attitude of humility by which you receive God's grace. See, the Gospels describe how Jesus agonized. He agonized in anticipation of being crucified, beaten, flogged, nailed to a cross where he would hang and he would die. And he knew what awaited him. And it says that knowing that as he anticipated it, it caused him to sweat blood. What that means is that he was so stressed out that the capillaries in his forehead burst and blood came out of his pores. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you consider the fact that Jesus himself said, that he was gonna be dead and then rise again after three days. Jesus himself knew that being crucified is a terrible way to die, but on the other hand, there are people who have suffered longer and more physical pain, haven't they? So why was Jesus so nervous? What was it about this that caused him such anxiety that he sweat blood? Well, if you read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in the Gospels, it's very clear that the agony of the cross wasn't primarily the physical pain. The agony of the cross was was what was happening in the spiritual realm when that took place. As Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced hell multiplied out. See, because as Jesus hung upon the cross, all the sins of the world, you know, God's righteous anger against things like the Holocaust, child abuse, sexual assault, all of that was placed upon him. And as Jesus bore our sins, the Father forsook him. It literally became dark in representing the fact that darkness had come upon him. It says that Jesus cried out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus, in his suffering and his death, he experienced that tangible darkness of being forsaken and separated from the Father. He experienced hell on your behalf so that you wouldn't have to experience it yourself. See, understanding the reality of hell and the severity of hell, it helps us understand why the gospel is actually such good news. As you get that, right, that it's only good news if it's good, right? In order to appreciate salvation, you have to understand what you are being saved from. Depending on what you're saved from, it's gonna affect how you feel about it. It's gonna affect how you appreciate it and how you respond and how you cling to your savior. The reason why Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible was because he loves you because he cares about you. Think about this. Would Jesus have been a better person? Would he have been a better teacher if he didn't talk so much about hell? I don't think so. Think about this. Would a doctor be a better doctor if he didn't tell you about your condition, especially if you had a curable disease, a disease for which there was a solution? No, that would be the worst doctor in the world. Jesus didn't just talk. He didn't, when he talked about hell, he didn't talk about it gleefully. He didn't talk about it glibly. No, he talked about it with a tear in his eye and a tremble in his voice. There was a sense of urgency that drove Jesus because he knew what was at stake. And again, he didn't just talk about it. He faced it head on in order to save you from it. He suffered hell so that you could have heaven. He was forsaken so that you could be accepted. And you might wonder, how does that even work, right? Like he's just one person. How does his death somehow resolve my problem and pay for my sins? Well, to understand that, you have to understand who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just a passive victim of God's wrath. No, Jesus, it says, was God himself. 
come to us in human flesh. Jesus declared, for example, that he is the one who will judge humanity at the end of time. In other words, Jesus is the judge who came down to be judged in our place. He is the one who took our place, the place of the condemned, in order that we might be set free. And the message of the gospel is that your situation was so dire that God himself had to come and die for you. But here's the good news. God loves you so much that he was glad to die for you. See, what we learn from this parable in Matthew 22 is this. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you. He sent messengers to you. He loves you. He has prepared everything. He's done everything in order to save you. He's provided everything you need, and he's inviting you to come to his wedding feast. And the question is, how will you respond to that invitation? What will you wear? Don't make the mistake of these people in this parable. May we be those who receive the gift of God's grace, but then maybe go one step further. See what happens after you receive that gift. Here's what happens. You get to become a messenger that God sends out into the world to invite others to come to his wedding feast. And as we do that, may we sense that same sense of urgency about God's mission to save people from hell, which Jesus himself felt. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this topic, it's a sobering topic. It's not one that we talk about gleefully or glibly, Lord. It's a topic that we talk about with a tear in our eyes and a tremble in our voice. But Lord, may we also sense that sense of urgency that you felt, Jesus, that, that caused you to say, uh, I will take on human flesh. I'll come down to this world. I'll suffer and I'll die in order to save these people. Lord, may we be those who gladly receive your salvation and thank you for it and cling to you with all that we have. And Lord, may we be those who then go out in mission and say, we want other people to experience and know what we ourselves have come to know of your grace. So Lord, we ask this morning that as we consider these things, Lord, fill us with a sense of appreciation for the gospel, a sense of thankfulness, but also a sense of mission to the lost. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.